Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Where do you get your ideas from? You said, you know, you can turn anything into a picture. There's nothing I don't love. Everything is fuel. Everything is fuel. Nothing's wasted. It all goes in. There's been some very difficult revelations this year. You've worked with a lot of the photographers in the industry, young and yeah. old, established and new. What do you make of all of that? Things have to happen in that very extreme way in order for everybody to check their behavior. Any words of advice for those out there who want to build a career in this industry? Not how to break in, but how to last. Always look outside yourself, expose yourself, but keep the integrity. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to Inside Fashion. This week, I'm really delighted to sit down with the legendary fashion editor and stylist, Lucinda Chambers. Now, we at BOF first got to know Lucinda better when she created a new course for our BOF education on fashion, styling, and image making. But over the years, I've always admired Lucinda for her incredible way of telling stories, and of course, for the images that she's managed to create with some of the top photographers in the world. So please enjoy this episode with Lucinda Chambers. There's lots of advice. There's lots of amazing stories as always. And there's a little bit of reflection on photography in the era of Me Too. So here's Lucinda Chambers, Inside Fashion. Good morning, Lucinda Chambers. Welcome to BOF HQ. Thank you. It's nice, nice to see you. Lovely to be here. You've just come back from holiday? Yes. Where did you go? France. How was it? Beautiful. Was it really warm? Yes. How long were you there? 
Not telling you. Ah, <laughs> you took a long vacation. Um, yes, but now I've mastered how to work when I'm on holiday, which I never there is did that before. Balance. Technology allows us to do a little yes, bit of work. Yes, as long right? as you keep it boundaried, as they say. There's so much that I want to talk to you about today. Um, you have such a storied career, um, and you've just launched a new endeavor, a new business, which yeah. must be an amazing experience to go through after having already had an amazing career. But where I really wanted to start was um, at the beginning and you know how you ended up pursuing fashion as a career in the first place. I mean, did you even know? I don't think I pursued it. I think I was incredibly, had a series of fortunate incidents, which was um, my parents split up. My mother and my brother and I had very little money. We needed to get some money to pay the mortgage. We filled the house with lodgers. But my mother had a really clever with idea. With lodgers? With lodgers. And my this is when, like in the 19... Eight, sort of late 70s. So pre-Airbnb. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think you could This is like Airbnb, Airbnb in the 70s. Airbnb with a twist, yes, mm -hmm. which had us circulating. But um, so my mother very beagerly and wisely said, I think we should go to art college. Um, and I was like, why? We're totally untalented. We being both How, of you. Oh, yeah. And she was 50, probably 56 at the time, 57, because we could get a grant. And in those days, you didn't have to pay the grant back. So we did make our portfolios on the kitchen table. She knew she had to learn a craft in order to earn a living. She'd always done things with her hands. So for instance, she'd always made my clothes. We never bought anything. We used to go to Harrods. We used to try all the clothes on. She always had a tape measure in her pocket, which I always do. I keep a tape measure upon my purse at all times. And we would measure everything in the changing room and then we'd go and buy the fabric and she would make it, copy it. Wow. So we loved clothes, the pair of us, but we never thought about fashion. We just loved dressing ourselves. Right. And I had millions of dolls that I used to play with and to probably a very inappropriate age. And so, we both got into our college and she got into London College of Printing to do a bookbinding course. And she became one of the world's top experts on decorative paper, went on to write 10 books for Tebbs and Hudson and lectured all around the world and made money, not a lot of money, but enough. And I went to Hornsey College of Art and it was a disaster for me. I mean, I, w I didn't have any talent and I knew it and I felt a fraud for being there. I and mean, I've been good at art. I got an art Where is Hornsey? It's now, it was now Middlesex Poly. Okay. Mm. In Crouch End. Oh, I see. It's just before it merged into Middlesex Polytechnic. And, um, and I, I suppose I realized I had to do something about it. I couldn't just jog along. Um, so you went to our college, did you, did you finish? I just did foundation because during the foundation, I was terrible at drawing. I could never shade. I hated not being able to shade. <laughs> I hated not having a thing, and I hadn't got a thing. And so I suppose I did think that I needed to get a thing. Your thing was clothes, though. But they weren't earning me money. I mean, I've worked since I was 13. I've always worked. I worked, you know, I wanted a television set of my own. And I asked my parents if we could have a television set. They said, no, you've got to earn some money. I went and worked in a newsagent when I was 13. I earned 25 pence an hour, but I 
saved up 45.99, I bought the television set. Wow. Um, and I kept it for a very long time. So I've always worked and I've always earned my own money. <coughs> but I never thought that I was particularly good at anything. Um, and I think that's quite hopeful because I think people think you've got to come out of the room fully styled and fully fashioned up and fully immersed in salon when, you know, no, I loved clothes for myself, but I, you know, couldn't afford anything special. And you didn't imagine, like, so when did you make the connection between the idea that your love of clothes... Could make a living? Yeah. When I was at art college, I went into a, the perspex room, plastics room, and the colours were inc insane, and I loved them. And I started to make shapes, and I loved working with drills, and I loved working with the saws, and I loved doing things with my hands. We'd always done things with my hands. My, you know, as I said, um, my mother and I used to make the school uniforms for school in London. I used to sew on all the buttons and cut out the collars, and she would sew the cloaks. And so I was good, you know, I knew I could use my hands. Um, and I started to make earrings, and I started to sell them. And I took a stall in Camden Market and I sold all these Perspex earrings. I never told the tutors because they thought fashion was appalling. It was quite a left wing, it was the first, first real sort of college that had sit-ins and it was quite radical. Oh, where you I, were studying? Where I was studying and I did say I'm quite interested in fashion. They went, oh, shut up, should be blown sky high, it's a terrible industry. Frivolous. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted me to make marks on paper. Marks on paper. I couldn't make it. I could, so anyway, sold the earrings and then sold them to a couple of shops. And then um, I tried to get into art college to do fashion design and I was rejected. Where did you apply? Ravenscourt, Ravensbourne. Okay. Right. Same, same college, you know. But I was that bad that they wouldn't keep me on. <laughs> and actually they didn't even look at my portfolio. It was interesting actually. Um, I had a really bad interview, but it, it was really good in the long run, as most things are, I think. But anyway, one of the pairs of earrings got into a magazine, got into a free magazine called Miss London. Into an editorial photo, yeah. yeah. But not of my making, not of my doing. Just I just don't know how it, that worked. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as, you know, I didn't read fashion magazines, you know, they're way too expensive. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that there was this process that you could be making something with a Black & Decker drill in your bedroom and it would end up that somebody would take it out of your hands and re-envisage it. And I was just so thrilled. I, wow. I, it was just like, oh, there is a process where that actually happens. That's insane. How did you find out it was in a magazine? I think somebody must have told me. But also it was a free magazine, it was handed out at Tubes, right. so maybe I came across it. And from there, that was a light bulb for it you? It was. It really was. I thought, there's a world here that seems so extraordinary that I've just experienced a tiny bit of it, and maybe there's a possibility that there's something like that, that, you know. Right. So I thought, everything I do must be connected with fashion. Everything. That's a big realization. How old were you when that happened? 17, 18. Wow. That's proven to be quite prophetic. 
Yes, I mean, I think if it hadn't worked out, I'd have done something else. Right. You know, it wasn't like my... I didn't feel my life depended on it. I had to earn a living, but I didn't feel if it comes to nothing, you know, I will just be totally devastated. But I just thought, wow, this is something... that There's a possibility here. Right. It's possibilities, isn't it? So once you had the light bulb, what happened next? Well, I took every kind of job I could that had some tenuous connection to clothes or fashion. So I worked in Topshop. I started to make costumes for a festival company in Edinburgh. Um, yeah. And when I was working at Topshop, I don't know what gave me the balls to do it. I think maybe at that time I was not very... didn't think fashion was frightening. And I rung up, I rung up Vogue. I started to look at magazines. I didn't buy them, I started to look at them in the library. And I loved the photography, and I particularly loved the photography in Vogue. So I rung them up and I was, again, very lucky. What happened? The head of HR answered the telephone. Her assistant was ill that day. And I said, look, I'm ringing you out of the blue. I have no experience, but I, you know, I would just, is there any chance that, you know, how do you apply to, you know, to come here? And she said, well, have you got a lunch hour? And I said, yeah, in about an hour. She said, come along, I'll see you. It was amazing. And she saw me, and the first question she said was, who do you know here? And I said, nobody. And actually, that was one of the things I am proud of, actually, at Vogue, was that I stopped that. What were you wearing that day? Do you remember? Oh, my gosh. I used to make all my clothes, and they used to fall apart. I used to make a lot of stuff out of furnishing fabrics because they were sort of cheaper and I did look a bit of a freak, I would say. I know I looked, I know I, know I looked. Do you know, do you know now why she decided to take a bet on you? Well, she was very sensible. She said, you've never sat behind a desk and you've never been a secretary because that's what you, that was the entry line in those days. She said, you don't know anybody here. She said, go and learn to type and come back. Don't take another job. She said, I like you. I don't know what it was. I suppose it was enthusiasm, and I think she could probably tell that I was a worker bee. You know, I've always been a worker bee. So I, le- I got a book, I learned to type, did it at the kitchen table, rash tat tat, phoned her up, I said, I, c- I, can t- I can do a business letter. Not very fast, but fast enough, I think. My mother used to test me. And about a month later, she, Angela Simons, rung me up and she said, We've got your job. It's the worst job in the building. But what was that job? It was, actually. It was secretary to a woman called Lily Davis who organised all the payments for Vogue and all the petty cash. Oh, how glamorous. No, it wasn't. <laughs> and I had to So what did lot. that mean? So you were, like, paying all of the people? No, I wasn't paying. No, I was typing out the slips that they put in for the petty cash. So people like Bailey would push in, you know, David 30 Bailey, quid. Yeah. yeah. But I was, the fact that I was typing his name was good enough. Do you know what I mean? And she used to throw bios at me because I did make all my clothes and they did fall apart and I did look ridiculous. And she used to throw pens at me and go, you're not in the fashion room yet. And I'd go, I know, I know, I know. And then uh, something happened and it turned a corner. How did you end up in the fashion room then? Well, I smoked. Uh, I've actually gave up not very long ago, but... Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, But she never went out for lunch, but except for Fridays. And in those days, you could smoke in the office. People smoked in the office. And 
She went out for lunch and I lit up. And I kicked back and I was like, oh, open the window. And she came back in, she'd forgotten something. And I threw the cigarette over the partition. In those days, all the office was open. They were like stud partitions, partition walls. I threw the cigarette over the partition, I panicked. And she went out and somebody, and I'd never met anybody else in Vogue because nobody came into our little no tiny cubby hole. No one wanted to be in the petty no, cash. No, not being phoned by Rosette and shouted out by Miss Davis for spending, you know, 30 pence more than they should have, which carried on for a great long time. But anyway, so the assistant to the editor came with a cigarette. Luckily, she was a smoker. I was so lucky in that respect. And she held the cigarette up. And she looked at me, she went, is this yours? And I thought, well, I'm just going to pack up my things now and just go, because clearly that's a firing offence. Right. And uh, I said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll just, I'll go. She said, that's hilarious. She said, do you want to meet the editor? I didn't even know what the editor looked like. And I said, well, gosh, well, yes, I mean, no, I mean, how, what? And she said, we're looking, she's looking for a secretary. And it was Beatrix Miller who was a legend, who was incredible, and she interviewed me. And she was the, she was the sort of the making of me, because she was so tough with me. But she said, she gave me the job as her secretary. I was hopeless. She made me really be methodical. She invested time in making me, you know, write everything down. I used to file everything under people's initials, their first name, because I thought it was so much more interesting. Lord Snowden was T for Tony. You know, I mean, it was crazy. I'd spent my whole life trying to get the letters back because I'd forgotten where I'd filed them. I mean, I was bubbles. But she stuck with it, uh, which in, was incredible. In what way was she hard on you? Like, how? Well, she'd say, you, you've got so much furniture in your head, darling, but you are hopeless. So she, you know, she'd say, go and redo that. Go and, you know, refile, do that. You know, she took the time. And actually... All the editors I've worked for are like that as well. They're incredibly... Nurturing is the wrong word, but I think if they find somebody, which they have, of course, all the editors I've worked with have found lots of people along the way. You find people, you invest in them. You, it's what we do, you know, you, you think you recognise something that is worth spending that tiny bit of time with. And she was... Terrific, and uh, it but, was amazing privilege to work underneath, you know, work under her. But that's not quite the fashion department, right? So what? No. Did, so what? When did you start? At the time, so I worked for her for three years, and during that time, because I looked such a lunatic, Grace Coddington was fashion director, and she kept on going into Beatrix Miller and saying, "I want her as my assistant." I didn't know that, and. Miss Miller would say, she's not ready, she's not ready, she's not ready. And after about two and a half, nearly three years, I'd always gone to, like, the sales, like, I, you know, if I could... At the weekends, I always did anything to, to promote Vogue. So I would go to Olympia and sell Vogue. I would go to all the sample sales that all the designers were giving, just to... Not to buy anything, because I couldn't afford it, but just to breathe in the same air as them. So anything I could do... Because, and I'd made friends with a designer called Wendy Dagworthy. Of course. And, and we got chatting over the months and years, and she said, do you want to come and work here? And I went into Miss Miller, I said, Miss Miller, I, you know, I've worked for you for three and a half years. I've loved everything, you know, you've taught me so much, but I have been offered this job and I, I think I've got to take it. And that was on Friday and on Monday I was Grace's assistant. Amazing. Amazing. 
What was it like to work with Grace Cotting? Amazing, but terrifying. And I was hopeless then as well. What was the first shoot you worked on with her? The first shoot I worked on with her was Norma Kamali's first collection. So it was in the 80s and we were going to, well, we weren't. The assistants never traveled with the editor. We, Grace was going to New York to shoot with Arthur L. Gort with a model called Susan Hess. And Norma Kamali had done her first collection. So it was the first time really that sportswear was designer wear and it was incredible. And it was, for me, it was beyond exciting. It was so different. And we were working with a hairdresser called Christian. He did the first buzz cut. I wasn't going to go, but I'd worked so hard on this story. And then we, had, we were doing another story. We always did two stories to make the budget work. And I'd worked so hard on another story that Grace went into Beatrix Miller and said, can Lucinda come with me? And literally, that was the first time any assistant had travelled. I thought I was going to die with excitement. I was going to New York with Grace. On your first shoot? On my first shoot. Uh, I mean, it was my first shoot for her. Right. And uh, we got there. I mean, she was... I mean, Grace is Grace. She's extraordinary and terrifying and legendary and bonkers and fabulous. And I love her now and we're really good friends. But I, you know, it was challenging. But I think she taught me probably everything that I know. What is, what is it about Grace that's made her so legendary? You know, what is her secret gift? Do you know what I think it is? I think it's a combination of things. But first of all, I think it goes back to her childhood that she hadn't, she had no real formal education. So if somebody put a book of Matisse in front of her, it was that she was looking at it for the first time. But through Grace's eyes, she didn't see the history of Matisse, where he came from, what he was building up to, the success or lack of success he had, the context that he was in. She would look at it as color, shapes, form, and relate it to clothes. And she had this ability, it's really interesting because on shoots, she's not a great communicator, all in the preparation. She would draw everything out, every, everything was in the preparation. So it was an incredible, uh, it was an incredible learning curve for me. It was, you know, to see kind of somebody who is a master at work and learn firsthand and watch their watch how they put it together was extraordinary because I've never seen anybody put, put things together like her. But it was through this, through her eyes, everything could become a picture. Anything could become a picture. Don't dismiss anything, any, any scrap, any, anything, literally anything. So she has this incredible, I would say childlike sounds not quite because it's unbelievably sophisticated, but it's grace sophistication. But this, nothing's clouded by what's gone before, what's gonna come afterwards. It's quite amazing. And the, her passion for photography, I've never come across, her passion for picture, and how to get that picture, and the picture that she wants, is extraordinary. So it was an amazing, it's, she has these amazing qualities that, that people will follow her anywhere because they know that the picture is going to be so good. How long did you work with her? About five, four or five years. Uh, yeah, about that. But I was, I was terrible. 
terrible assistant. Oh, I'm sure that's not true. No, it's true. How she would that last in five years then? I think Why did she keep not you? the novelty factor. Um, <clears throat> I think because there are other people around to pick up the pieces that I dropped. I mean, I'm not just saying that to be disingenuous. I mean, I loved calling in the clothes. I loved being on shoots. I loved thinking of things. You know, I'd do crazy things. I'd do anything for Grace. You know, I'd go to Chelsea Fire Station and beg for their dungarees. They had to be old dungarees. I didn't want to get new dungarees for I wanted them to be old. And they had to be yellow and they had to be waterproof. And I remember, you know, so I'd, do any, I'd walk on water for her. You know, I really would have gone through hot coals for her. So... That was fantastic, but but with the bits like sending the clothes back, oh, I'd shove them in a cupboard. I remember once Liz Tilberis opened the cupboard, the whole lot came on top of her. <laughs> she said, tell that fucking girl to send some clothes back. Because I was wow. like, you know, that's the least interesting part. So it was because of Grace that you became a stylist. Would you say that? Yes, probably. And when you think of, there's so many, you know, you've done this course for us, yeah. which has been, had a huge Thrilled response, as I've I'm said, on please. styling and image making. When you describe the profession of a stylist now, with all, all the experience that you have, how do you describe what a stylist really does? Is it about the picture? Is it about the clothes? Is it about the, like, what, what is? It's everything. But I think, I think what's great about now, and especially with the era that we're in, and with technology that it is, is that actually stylists can kind of pick and choose and more define how they want their career to be. Whereas in my, when I was growing up in the profession, we weren't called stylists. I'd never heard of the word stylist. We were called fashion editors because nobody was freelance. Everybody was affiliated to a magazine. There were very few magazines. You know, there wasn't that whole raft of middle market magazines. There was either a free magazine that was handed out on the tube like Miss London or there was Vogue and Harper's and Queen as it was then. So it was a much more closed shop. And I have to say that everybody who was at Vogue had got there because they knew somebody. They weren't there because they thought it was an incredible career. I think Grace was there because she had been a model and she had got to have incredible relationships with people and had made those relationships by herself because she was an extraordinary person but she had started being a model. So unless you started being a makeup artist, a model, some, something else, you know, it was very hard to find stylist. So you were a fashion editor. And actually when Grace left British Vogue to go and work for Calvin Klein, that was the first time that we'd ever heard of anybody leaving a magazine to go and be a consultant or to be, you know, a design consultant. So that was a very new thing. Now, you know, you can do design consultancy and you can be called a stylist and you can not work for magazines if you don't want to. So I think in these days, uh, it's very free. I think you can, you can cherry pick if you like. I mean, I think what it does is it's, of course, like anything, it's good and bad. And it has a negative side, which is literally anybody can become a stylist, but it has a good side, which is anybody can become a stylist. So. You know, I think uh, it's got to be a good thing because it's got to be democratic. But there's an awful lot of people out there probably who aren't particularly talented, who are getting paid. And there's, but I think at least if you are, you've got a voice and you've right. got a visual platform. Right. So Grace left for Calvin Klein. How, like, how you ended up leaving for Elle for a bit. I left, yes. And again, a lucky break. You know, everything's sort of timing and, and, 
at that point, very sadly, she died, but Sally Brampton was there and she had been asked by Murdoch and Hachette uh, to start out. And it was um, going to be a monthly magazine as opposed to a weekly magazine that, be, that was in France. And she asked me if I wanted to be fashion director, which was a sort of incredible leap for me because to make that leap, and I think it's true today, to make the leap from assistant to a, let alone fashion director, but to be an editor, it was massive. You know, every page in a magazine is incredibly precious. It costs a huge amount of money. You know, you can't screw up. So it was very hard to have your own pages. I mean, I did. I was doing my own pages at Vogue by that time mm-hmm. um, because I'd been shunted like a sort of railway train to the beauty department, which again was actually fantastic for me because the beauty editor hated doing shoots and I frigging loved doing shoots. So I did all her shoots, thrilled to do every single one of them. There was a lot of beauty shoots and, and it really gave me a love of, even though I don't wear it, it gave me a love of makeup and hair and a really understanding of hair and makeup artists and a real appreciation of them, I think. So it was, that was very good training. Another critical part of a shoot, right? Is Massive. Working. Yeah. Because I really enjoy it. I love, you know, it's, it's, everything's important as everything. So anyway, Sally asked me to be fashion director. Literally my salary, when I was living in a squat at the time, I was earning £3,000. My salary was like, I can't even tell you what it was. It's like, it was Life beyond. Life-changing. Life-changing, Yeah. I could afford to buy a tiny flat. Um, I became a fashion director. I ran a team. So it was, it was amazing. I made a lot of mistakes, but it was, it was really great to start something, to start something new. Was, and it, when I left, Anna Winter went to work at British Vogue. Beatrix Miller was leaving. I left. Sally and I left to start Elle. Uh, Anna Winter came to run English Vogue. So it was funny timing. It's good timing for me. Yeah, but then you went back. When Anna left, Liz Hilberis came and she asked me to go back. And then your role then was? My role was fashion editor. So a step down in a way. A sort of a step down, but but what what I was starting to do was consulting. So I remember when I first joined Vogue for the second time, I remember going around Vogue saying, has anybody heard of this company called Prada? And nobody had. I think Sarah Moa said, I think it was Sarah Moa said, actually, I think they do luggage. I think, I think it might be a luggage brand. And I thought, luggage, interesting. Leather, factories, interesting. Yeah, can do that. So they had, had approached done, you? They approached me. And I had done lots of consultancy before that. And I was really enjoying it. Loved that, I loved that side of it. And I'd started on a high street brand. We'd started a a brand called Principles. They approached me to start it. And um, we'd started it and it was very successful. It was sort of kind of like the first high street brand that wasn't throwaway clothes, that wasn't that sort of high return of clothes. It was very good fabrics. They weren't incredibly cheap, but it was sort of, it was slightly below mid market. And it was for women in business. And um, I really enjoyed doing that. How did you? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Balance the role of being on the masthead of a really prominent magazine and then also do this consulting work and then keep a separation because over the years some fashion editors have gotten into trouble. Yes. It was always very clear to me and it always has been very clear to me and that's why I didn't ever get into trouble because... um, well, all the years that I worked at Vogue, I never shot Marnie. Where you ended up consulting for a long yes. time. I never shot Prada, and I worked for them for 10 years. I left it to other people to decide whether they wanted it in the magazine or not. And that was always very clear to me. So there was no grey area at all, at all. Even if I was desperate to shoot it. Um, and that was the line that was non-negotiable. And I think the bosses of the magazines that I worked for, I know Alex did and Liz did. I never said that I would do that, but they knew that that's, you know, that I, that's how I behave, that there's, that's what has to be done in order for the lines not to be blurred. Um, Because otherwise I think it's complicated. But certainly Liz Tilberis, when she was editor of Vogue and she got me in for the second time and asked me to be a fashion editor, I did say I love this consultancy and she allowed me to do it and it was unusual. But, you know, she wanted me there. I was very 
happy. She wanted me there and she was prepared to make an exception. And I didn't abuse it. Mm. You know, Lucinda, I follow you on Instagram. Oh, do you? And, um, Thank you. I love following you on Instagram because you always find like the most amazing little treasures. And it, it reminded me of that documentary uh, on Grace. Well, it was maybe, I can't remember which documentary it was. Was it like the September issue? Yes, with, where she with says that, uh, you know, where she talks about always having an eye and like, you know, always paying attention. Yeah all the time yeah and when I follow you on Instagram and I see these little things that you discover in Portobello or yeah. in other places it, I was like how did she find that <laughs> where do you get your ideas from like like you said you know you can turn anything into a picture I think anybody can turn anything into a picture if that's what they want to do I think it's a a thing of I don't know what it is quite it's um I don't ever start out looking for anything specific so I think you have to keep a really open mind. I think I turn over things a lot in my head all the time. I mean, it's different from what I buy to what I end up doing in a fashion shoot, but obviously there's a huge crossover. But I think I'm a real magpie. Like, I don't... Well, actually, like a little bit of a... A little bit tasteless, actually. I love... There's nothing I don't love. I mean... Talk about mid-century modern, quality sweet wrappers, sticky back plastic. So you see the beauty in everything, whether it's like mass or class. Yes. Well, there's a lot of things that I don't find beauty in, but I yeah. but yes, I look at something and I think that could be a picture where I'd like to wear that or I could turn that upside down and back to front and that could make an interesting shape. Uh, and I am a bit of a magpie like that, I suppose. Um, Do you think that's what's made your career so successful and so um, long and enduring? I don't know. I must don't know be, because it must... I mean, whenever I have conversations with stylists, I think it's really about that ability to, one, be curious, always be looking. Yeah. Always like to look at whatever it might yeah, be. And anything. then, two, figure out how to take that inspiration, use some imagination, and figure out how to turn it into a picture, whether it's a color... Yeah. Or like yeah. a texture and or a shape, you, you know? Yes. And sometimes you don't think of it at the time. And I often think of my brain as a kind of like a storage holding pattern storage, like a sort of storage Rolodex type situation where I see something and I think, that's amazing. It's not quite right for the shoot that I'm working on now, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna pop it back. You know, some somebody can say anything. Like I remember when I was doing a shoot years ago and Simon McKnight said a friend of mine's just done a Dutch floristry course. And he was saying it on passant, he was talking about a friend of his and what she was up to, and, and that just, everything goes in. And, you know, maybe it was two years later that I was doing a shoot with Josh Olins about modern masters, and I thought, I'd like, and I went to see an exhibition at the portrait gallery of Native American Indians, and the stillness of them was so intense. And I thought, that's what I want, that's what I want for this shoot. But then I thought, but I want also the, the stillness of Dutch flowers and all those you know, Jan van Eyck's, and, you know, all those artists in there as well. And then I thought, oh, man, wasn't that that friend of Sam McKnight's who said she'd done a call? So everything is, everything is fuel. Everything is fuel. Nothing is wasted. Nothing's wasted. Not a film, not a crisp packet. Nothing's wasted. It all goes in. And, you know, when I'm on the tube and I'm looking at looks and I'm looking at people, it's like, you know, 
there's nothing that inspiration is everywhere everywhere yeah, yeah. everywhere having said that i really admire stylists who are not kind of like as my mother would call it ragbag mind i think i have a ragbag mind you know i really uh admire stylists like joe mckenna where it's a white shirt it's like super oh my focused. gosh it's so focused it's beautiful and i love you know my god i think he's a master you know so it's not that I, what I think is the way to go. It's just, it's just my way. You have to find your own way. Basically. And sometimes I think, you know, you can sometimes think, you know, I'm jack of all trades, a master of none. You know, I remember somebody saying the other day, I think a model said, oh, who's the stylist? Somebody said, oh, it's Lucinda. And somebody said, oh, that'll be the kitchen sink then. <laughs> not in a good way. <laughs> but, you know, yes, I love stuff. You yeah. know. But then I could do a minimal shoot. I think Alex, when I was at my time at Vogue, wished I did more minimal shoots, but I just couldn't help myself sometimes. What's the... I know this is hard to answer, but is there one shoot that you're the most proud of? Difficult. It's not difficult because I'm... because I don't really look back. So it's very... So I very rarely look back at my... Anything that I've so done. many people in fashion say that. Carl Lagerfeld always says oh, that really? too. He's like, I never look back. I only look in the future. I never this think. Is probably much I never more think about the past. You this know? is probably more, more of an intellectual kind of exercise yeah. and makes it sound brainy. Whereas designers always say, I'm thinking about the next collection. It's never about the. Well, you know, of course, I've had to look at work when I'm doing something like I don't know. Well, like you know, doing a talk, or you know, then I have to look at my work and I obviously have to edit it. And there's some shoots that I'm you know, not happy with. There's a lot of shoots. You know, because I look at the shoots and I think, oh, I shouldn't have let that go. You know, so I suppose you are always striving to do, you know, if you, I always, I would think the next shoot will be the shoot that I'm most proud of, hopefully. I mean, I always think there's something more to learn and something more to do and right. something more to achieve. And there are shoots that I, I think the photographies, you know, I look at young photographers that I've worked with, say, like Jack Davison, and I think I'm so glad that I got to work with him and that I'm going to work with him again because, I, you know... Brilliant. He's brilliant. And so I love those pictures, but I don't feel I love them because it had anything to do with me. I just love them because of the picture that he took. Right. right. Things are changing with all the photographers now. There's this, like, generational shift. There's been some very difficult... Yeah. Um, ...revelations this yeah. year. You've worked with a lot of the photographers in the industry, young and yeah. old, established and new. What do you make of all of that on set? I have to say, I've once been on set where I felt very compromised. And it was with a photographer who hasn't been outed. And I wrapped it up quickly, as quick as I could. And I never worked with that photographer again. I've never been on set, and I suppose because I'm a mother, and everybody knows that, that nobody has behaved badly around me. I'm incredibly fortunate in that way. I think what has happened had to happen, and I think the needle had to go into red in order for it to go back into a place of progress, of course. And I think with the needle going into red, there are some casualties. 
that are really sad. Yeah, people you worked with very closely. Of course. Mario, yes, Patrick. Patrick, absolutely. So very, very sad making, indeed. But it had to happen. I think things have to happen in that way, in that very extreme way, in order for everybody to check their behavior yeah. and to take stock. And unless radical things did happen anywhere, racism, anything, then you can't just jog along with that. Yeah. You, you know, you have to, and you have to look at your behavior. I mean, I have to say, I'm lucky enough because I am a mother. I, you know, work with models all the time and have done, and you know, my oldest son is 30. So I've always been in a sort of position of nurturing and looking after people. But yes, I have to say the only time I felt very uncomfortable was, was and actually, they're still working. But you know what I think? It'll happen. It's not, yeah. it wasn't for me to call them out, but I think... Uh, well, that was a different time, right? And I think, you know, I'm, we've been looking back on this year, we've been putting the final touches on our um, BOF 500 print issue. And we've been thinking a lot about this year in fashion and what it means. And um, right at the end of the book, there's you know a celebration of some of the new creativity that's emerged. You know, in the wake yeah. of what's been a really, you know, challenging yeah. year for the industry. So, do you think there's a silver lining? Of course, there's always. A, of course, there is. Of course, there is. And interestingly, you know. I, of course, talked to Mario and I, of course, talked to Patrick um, because I worked with them for a very, very long time. And even you get a sense from them that they are looking for the positive throughout that behaviour and throughout that time. They will learn from it and look from the positive. And from the point of view of... No, I certainly don't think that because several very high-profile photographers exited the business that it made room for the young photographers. I think that was already happening. Okay. That was t absolutely, totally, 100% already happening. And I think, you know, what's difficult is that a lot of magazines really relied on those top photographers. They delivered something that was very pertinent to the magazines, you know. So I think they're all looking... You know, I think it's, they're looking to how they can replace them. And that does leave room for other people for that, those top slots. But I also think that a lot of, a lot of young photographers were emerging anyway, because there was such a, there was such a sea change in photography like five years ago. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. And always, and it was one of the things that I always so enjoyed at Vogue, was finding new talent. You know, whether it was Tim Walker coming in with three pictures of his cat, Max Verducal bringing in a picture of his grandmother, whether it was Jack Davison coming in with a picture of his grandmother, uh, Josh Olins, you know, anybody, anybody, you know. Uh, that was, that's one of my, I just, I just, I'm about to work with another photographer new to me. Actually, he's middle-aged but he was a car photographer. He now wants to do fashion. They're fantastic, his pictures. Right. So 
I think that's always been there, and I think that was really part of Vogue's... Well, actually, I think it would be any magazine that I work for. Part of our sort of due diligence, in a way, is to see who's out there and to... I would never, ever turn down anybody, seeing anybody's book, mm. ever, because you never know. So all you photographers listening out there, yep. Lucinda will see your book. I will. You have embarked recently on a new journey in your career, which I also wanted to spend some time chatting about with you, which is Colville. Um, and I, I guess, would it be accurate to say that the idea for Colville began when you stopped working for, for Marnie? Yes, a hundred percent, yeah. And the two designers that you were working with, you used to collaborate with them yes. at Marnie. So tell us a little bit about Colville and why why the fashion industry needed another brand? I don't think fashion industry needs another brand, but I do think if it's a good idea, there's always room for good ideas. So, you know, no, we don't, nobody needs a handbag, nobody needs another. Well, actually, that check shirt in Manuel Wang is beautiful. It's sort of like a tablecloth. It's like a fabulous designer tablecloth. I love it. It's lovely. Thank you. You know, did you need that shirt? Mm, I have to say I did. <laughs> you keep telling yourself that. Um, and that's why the wonderful world of fashion keeps on turning, which is great. But no, of course, but you have ideas and you think, you know, you think you want to do them. I mean, you know, two years ago, would somebody say you're going to be working for indie magazines and American Vogue and start a business? Absolutely not. You know, would I have thought that I would stop doing something that I loved, which was Marnie and British Vogue, why would I stop doing something that I loved? But it's propelled me, situations have so propelled me into other situations which I always, I mean, I always said to my husband, he would say, why don't you start your own business? I go, I'm never, I'm never, I'm, I'm not interested in the business of fashion. I'm only interested in your business of fashion. I'm not interested in the business of fashion. All I want to do is have the ideas and fiddle around with clothes. This year has been amazing. It's been amazing. I sit in meeting after meeting. I'm starting another company, which is a digital one. That's, you know, a whole other world which I thought I wouldn't have to get involved with, which I started to at Vogue. Obviously, I was curious about, but I didn't think it would be a big part of my life. Now it's a massive part of my life. Um, Colville started because when change happens, you have to react to change. And I do think all change is for the better, even if it's for the worse. You can think it's for the worse, it will be for the better. I really, I'm a great believer in that. So, you know, when the two, my partners Molly Malloy and Christine Foss said, you know, listen, we want to start a, at first I was, start a company. I was like, oh no, no, you know, I just do it for other people, you know. Because I worked a part of it for 10 years, you know, and I loved build, you know, building, I loved Mutual, and, and I, you know, we started Marnie 28 years ago. I loved building bands, but I never thought I'd take on that, you know. I frigging love it. I love the business meetings, I love the money aspect, I love the production aspect, I love the whole What have you thing. learned that you didn't know before? Oh, everything, my God. Um, how to sell something, to sell something that's yours, not, not with a big machine behind you, uh, I think I've learned to have a, a voice of my own. Not channeling someone else's yes. vision. And also, 
you know, I'd worked for big, you know, worked for Marnie, it was a big company in the end, it was massive. Worked for Vogue, massive company. I had all, like a snail on my back, I had that big house to, that was my calling card. I never felt that that was, that I was defined by that. But of course it was a wonderful support. Yeah, it gave you a sense of security, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Being an entrepreneur is hard. Yeah, you? but it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, is there one kind of item that you guys have worked on that's really starting to generate interest in the market? That oh. Because um, what, what I usually tell young designer yes. brands when they're starting out, I say, you have to create something, at least one thing, really, that people really that's want. unique and unique to them and yeah, very desirable. Because desirable. it's hard to build, especially at the early stages of a business, it's hard to build a business. With Across like a, the board. Yeah, yeah you need course. to find something that starts to generate the, yeah. the interest and the money yeah. to sustain everything else. Yeah. And actually, normally companies do have that one thing. I mean, Prada had those often. black nylon. Well, it was genius because I remember working on them. And I remember Patrizio Bocelli was so clever. He said, you know, we're charging this amount for the black nylon when it costs us X amount to make, but for a beautiful leather handbag. I mean, he didn't, you know, nylon was, it was great how, how we did it. Yeah. But he said, but this will, be, this will be our core product, but it's actually less expensive than the leather handbags, which we're going to be known for. Is it? So, but I don't think we're business people like him. <laughs> so I think what, I don't think we, we're strategic like that. If I'm perfectly honest, we're not strategic. And you know what? I don't think that's a bad thing. Of course, you know, if somebody says, we love you for color, we love you for your hand, it is sleep. You know, there are certain things at Colville that have sold out. Uh, and we think, do we want to repeat them? Is that a good business way to go? But you know what? I've started brands, I've watched brands grow, I've been part of the process, and I have to say, it's not a frigging algorithm. No. I've started this digital company, it's really techy, it's not an algorithm. It's from the heart. And I know that sounds cheesy and corny, and maybe our product will come out. Uh, I can see certain things that we're gonna be very strong at, but we're never going to drop the things that don't sell out, but because we love them. And I don't think we're so extreme and weird and unusual that there aren't lots of people out there who won't like what we're doing. And that's the other thing, is don't think you're exceptional. I mean, I, I think there are lots of me's out there, you know, who want to wear colour, print, texture, blah, 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 blah. I wore mine for you today. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Thank you. Um, few final parting words of advice for those out there who want to build a career in this industry. Not how to break in, but how to last. Because I think, I think it's easier to break into fashion now. Yes. You know, there's it's so many different avenues. You know, everyone can... Yeah. You can hook up how do you have a career with the longevity of someone like Lucinda Chambers? Gosh. Um, I think the ability... And I wouldn't have said in the past that this was a strength of mine, but I think now with my new careers, I think it's still being good said, which is to never stand still. Fashion is very restless. To not dismiss things, to be open to things, and to always listen to people, 
But in the end, do what you absolutely believe in, even if it doesn't necessarily make you popular, or I'm not saying you're going to behave badly, but but have that sort of try and harness that instinct of what you know is right, and that goes through from behaviour, you know, treating everybody on the shoot with respect, to have that integrity, I think, throughout your career. Um, and to always look outside yourself, always look outside yourself and never rest. You know, that restlessness about trying to build a better picture, use that in a positive force. Use that in a way to explore things that you wouldn't normally look at, go and see films that you wouldn't normally see, go and see exhibitions that you're not particularly interested in. Push yourself. Always on the move, I think. That's Expose nice. yourself, expose yourself but keep the integrity. Okay. Well, those are some wise words. I think um, that's a nice place to end. I want to thank you for popping in here to chat with me. Uh, for those of you who are listening and have enjoyed hearing a little bit of Lucinda's story and her advice, there's so much more. We have a full online course on BOF education called Fashion, Styling and Image Making. It's one of our most popular courses. So we'll be sure to include a link to that course in the description notes for this episode of Inside Fashion. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and I bid you farewell. We are in the dog days of summer, just gearing up for Fashion Week in September, so you'll hear more from me very soon on Inside Fashion. Thanks, Lucinda. Thank you so much. All right, bye. For a limited time only, we are offering BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on Lucinda's course. To receive your discount, click on the link in the episode notes and enter the promotion code PODCASTSTYLING at the checkout. I love styling because it incorporates almost everything that I find exciting. I love clothes to make a picture, to make shapes, to make the viewer feel emotional, to make the model feel something in those clothes. I've had tremendous highs, lots of lows, disaster stories, wonderful stories, and I'm really looking forward to taking you on this journey with me. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.